Sherlock Holmes. And what did you do then? asked Holmes. I went home to Saxe-Coburg Square, and I took the advice of my assistant, but he could not help me in any way. He could only say that if I waited I should hear by post. But that was not quite good enough, Mr. Holmes. I did not wish to lose such a place without a struggle. So, as I had heard that you were good enough to give advice to poor folk who were in need of it, I came right away to you. And you did very wisely, said Holmes. Your case is an exceedingly remarkable one, and I shall be happy to look into it. From what you have told me, I think that it is possible that graver issues hang from it than might at first sight appear. Grave enough, said Mr. Jabez Wilson. Why, I've lost four pounds a week. As far as you are personally concerned, remarked Holmes, I do not see that you have any grievance against this extraordinary league. On the contrary, you are, as I understand, richer by some thirty pounds, to say nothing of the minute knowledge that you have gained on every subject which comes under the letter A. You have lost nothing by them. No, sir, but I want to find out about them, and who they are, and what their object was in playing this prank, if it was a prank, upon me. It was a pretty expensive joke for them, for it cost them two and thirty pounds. We shall endeavour to clear up these points for you. And first, one or two questions, Mr. Wilson. This assistant of yours who first called your attention to the advertisement, how long has he been with you? About a month, then. How did he come? In answer to an advertisement. Was he the only applicant? No, I had a dozen. Why did you pick him? Because he was handy, and would come cheap. At half wages, in fact. Yes. What is he like, this Vincent Spaulding? Small, stout-built, very quick in his ways. No hair on his face, though. He's not short of thirty. Um, has a white splash of acid upon his forehead. Holmes sat up in his chair in considerable excitement. I thought as much, said he. Have you ever observed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Yes, sir. He told me that a gypsy had done it for him when he was a lad. Hm, said Holmes, sinking back in deep thought. He is still with you? Oh, yes, sir. I've only just left him. And has your business been attended to in your absence? Nothing to complain of, sir. There's never very much to do of a morning. That will do, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion upon the subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to a conclusion. Well, Watson, said Holmes, when our visitor had left us, what do you make of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered frankly. It is a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It is your commonplace, featureless crimes which are really puzzling, just as a commonplace face is most difficult to identify. But I must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do, then? I asked. To smoke, he answered. It is quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for fifty minutes. He curled himself up in his chair, with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose, and there he sat, with his eyes closed and with his black clay pipe thrusting out like a bill of some strange bird. I had come to the conclusion that he had dropped asleep, and indeed was nodding myself, when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with the gesture of a man who has made up his mind and put his pipe down upon the mantelpiece. "'Sarah Satay plays at St. James Hall this afternoon,' he remarked. "'What do you think, Watson?' Could your patience spare you for a few hours? I have nothing to do today. My practice is never very absorbing. Then put on your hat and come. I am going through the city first, and we can have some lunch on the way. 
I observe that there is a good deal of German music on the program, which is rather more to my taste than Italian or French. It is introspective, and I want to introspect. Come along. We travelled by the underground as far as Aldersgate, and a short walk took us to Saxe-Coburg Square, the scene of the singular story which we had listened to in the morning. It was a poky, little shabby, genteel place, where four lines of dingy two-storied brick houses looked out into a small, rallied enclosure, where a lawn of weedy grass and a few clumps of faded laurel bushes made a hard fight against the smoke-laden and uncongenial atmosphere. Three gilt balls and a brown board with Jabez Wilson in white letters upon a corner house announced the place where our red-headed client carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it, with his head on one side, and looked it all over, with his eyes shining brightly between puckered lids. Then he walked slowly up the street, and then down again to the corner, still looking keenly at the houses. Finally, he returned to the pawnbroker's, and having thumped vigorously upon the pavement with his stick two or three times, he went up to the door and knocked. It was instantly opened by a bright-looking, clean-shaven young fellow, who asked him to step in. "'Thank you,' said Holmes. "'I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand.' Third right, fourth left,' answered the assistant promptly, closing the door. "'Smart fellow, that,' observed Holmes, as we walked away. "'He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London. "'And for daring, I'm not sure that he can claim to be third. "'I've known something of him before.' "'Evidently.' said I. Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the red-headed league. I'm sure that you inquired your way merely in order that you might see him. Not him. What then? The knees of his trousers. And what did you see? What I expected to see. Why did you beat the pavement? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in the enemy's country. We know something of Saxe-Coburg Square. Let us now explore the paths which lay behind it. The road in which we found ourselves as we turned round the corner from the retired Saxe-Coburg Square presented as great a contrast to it as the front of a picture does to the pack. It was one of the main arteries which convey the traffic of the city to the north and west. The roadway was blocked with an immense stream of commerce flowing in a double tide inwards and outwards, while the footpaths were black with the hurrying swarm of pedestrians. It was difficult to realise, as we looked at the line of fine shops, and stately business premises, that they really abutted on the other side upon the faded and stagnant square which we had just quitted. "'Let me see,' said Holmes, standing at the corner and glancing along the line. "'I should like just to remember the order of the houses here. It is a hobby of mine to have an exact knowledge of London. There is Mortimer's, the tobacconist, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of the City and Suburban Bank, the vegetarian restaurant, and Macfarlane's carriage-building depot. That carries us right to the other block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee, and then off to violin land, where all is sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary merit. All the afternoon... He sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were unlike those of Holmes the sleuth-hound, Holmes the relentless, keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent as it was possible to conceive.
in his singular character the dual nature alternatively asserted itself, and his extreme exactness and astuteness represented, as I have often thought, the reaction against the poetic and contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. The swing of his nature took him from extreme languor to devouring energy, and, as I well knew, he was never so truly formidable as when for days on end he had been lounging in his armchair amid his improvisations and his black-letter editions. Then it was that the lust of the chase would suddenly come upon him, and his brilliant reasoning power would rise to the level of intuition until those who were acquainted with his methods would look askance at him as on a man whose knowledge was not that of other mortals. When I saw him that afternoon so enwrapped in the music at St. James Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those whom he had set himself to hunt down. "'You want to go home, no doubt, Doctor,' he remarked as we emerged. "'Yes, it would be as well. "'And I have some business to do, which will take some hours. "'This business at Cobo Square is serious.' "'Why serious?' "'A considerable crime is in contemplation. "'I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it. "'But today being Saturday rather complicates matters. "'I shall want your help tonight. "'At what time? Ten will be early enough. "'I shall be at Baker Street at ten. "'Very well. "'And I say, Doctor, there may be some little danger, "'so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket.' "'He waved his hand, turned on his heel, "'and disappeared in an instant among the crowd. "'I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbours, "'but I was always oppressed with a sense of my own stupidity "'in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. "'Here I had heard what he had heard. "'I had seen what he had seen. "'And yet, his words, it was evident that he saw clearly "'not only what happened, but what was about to happen, while to me the whole business was still confused and grotesque. As I drove home to my house in Kensington, I thought it all over, from the extraordinary story of the red-headed copier of the encyclopedia, down to the visit to Saxe-Coburg Square and the ominous words with which he had parted from me. What was this nocturnal expedition, and why should I go armed? Where were we going, and what were we to do? I had the hint from Holmes that this smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. I tried to puzzle it out, but gave up in despair, and set the matter aside until night should bring an explanation. It was a quarter past nine when I started from home, and made my way across the park, and so through Oxford Street to Baker Street. Two hansoms were standing at the door, and as I entered the passage I heard the sound of voices from above. On entering the room I found Holmes in animated conversation with two men, one of whom I recognised as Peter Jones, the official police agent, while the other was a long, thin, sad-faced man, with a very shiny hat and oppressively respectable frock-coat. "'Ha! Our party is complete,' said Holmes, buttoning up his pea-jacket and taking his heavy hunting-crop from the rack. "'Watson, I think you know Mr. Jones of Scotland Yard?' "'Let me introduce you to Mr. Merriweather, who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure.' "'We're hunting in couples again, Doctor, you see,' said Jones, in his consequential way. "'Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting a chase. "'All he wants is an old dog to help him, to do the running down.'" End of Part 3